0: Gawker might not necessarily be the hill you want to die on for that debate. Uh, you have to pick a hill at some point. you know, yeah. you got to draw a line somewhere, and better to die on this hill than you know, when it's too late for the Washington Post or for the New York mm-hmm. Times and their student to oblivion.
1: Welcome to Hacks and Flax, the podcast for March Communications, where we cover PR, marketing, media, communications. I'm Manny Vega. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm joined today by my colleague here at March, Andrew Griswaz. How's it going?
0: Hey, Manny. I'm doing well. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty well myself. As we speak, it's actually, what, end of August here, so mm-hmm. summer kind of winding down. Uh, how was your summer, by the way?
0: It was good. I was actually thinking about it the other day, and I didn't really go anywhere a yeah. lot or do a lot of things but it felt pretty relaxed
1: it felt good anyway yeah yeah
0: it was uh i guess a lot of staycation but staycation i don't have a no problem with that
1: i generally do that in the summer i travel mostly like spring and, and fall yeah like summer i feel like you want to hang around because it's gonna be nice out here anyway so
0: yeah i think i took a trip to california this year in the winter i'm taking another trip to california in the fall so i feel like when it's cold here that's when it's time to go away
1: yeah that's when you want to get out yeah we're in california uh san francisco i've never been out there we have an office there, and we have never been out there.
0: It's really nice. I went there for the first time last fall or spring. I want to say early 2015. Yeah, um, I was kind of like immediately fell in love with it. Really? Yeah, and I was, kind of, was I had this feeling like if I had you know five times as much money, <laughs> <maybe> <laughs> I can move out there. You know,
1: I actually just saw a story that said um, something like less than a quarter of of all homes in San Francisco. Are priced less than one million dollars? Yeah, it sounds about right. I okay. mean,
0: I saw billboards out there that are kind of like advertising one million dollar homes is a cheap deal. Yeah, um, which was, which is when I knew that I it was never meant to be for me. But,
1: but I mean, they all know that's crazy, right? Like, it's yeah. not like everyone in San Francisco is just like flush with cash and buying $1 million dollar homes. I don't.
0: I don't really know what the sensation is because I don't. You know, I'm not like when I'm out there, I'm not asking people about their <laughs> thoughts in the housing market. Sure. But I get this feeling like everyone knows it's way too expensive and way too unsustainable. But like no one's actively doing anything or at least not enough um and they're just kind of like living the situation i feel like it's like living in manhattan where everyone acknowledges it's stupidly expensive but yeah it is what it is yeah
1: you know? yeah i mean that's it's where the action is i guess if you're in the tech scene uh, and if you're peter teal who is actually a, a subject of today's story it's very good segue yeah uh so i mean while it was a good summer for us uh, not so good for gawker uh, gawker media of course uh, went bankrupt <laughs> yeah, and it was their worst summer ever <laughs> literally the worst summer it could possibly be and uh, of course gawker.com now, is um, no more. They're gone. Yep. It was their big media demise, and in pretty controversial circumstances all around it. So, a lot to recap here, a lot to cover, and of course, I guess the 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 place to start is the lawsuit, right, between Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. of, of all people in the world, Hulk Hogan. We're better to start. We're <laughs> better to start uh, suing Gawker Media because they published, um, let's say, an intimate video of Hogan. Uh, this is like years ago too.
0: Yeah, I believe it was 2012.
1: 2012. Yeah, AJ Delario was right. the former editor who actually published like a play-by-play. Uh, did not go over well with Hogan, of course. He labeled it an invasion of privacy. Uh, Gawker sort of defended itself as you know, freedom of speech, of course. Hogan's a public figure. Mm-hmm. They kind of litigated in the courts, got pretty nasty and sorted. And at the end of the day, the judge ruled in favor of Hogan. And it was like $140 million judgment right. against Gawker. And it's actually kind of interesting because that, that $140 million was split. Uh, $15 million against Gawker itself. $10 million against Nick Denton, who's the founder of mm-hmm. Gawker, $100,000 against A.J. DeLario, the writer, and $115 million as a joint judgment against all three defendants. So a lot of money on the line for all these people. And as a result, uh, there's a bankruptcy filing just this past June for Gawker, uh, a personal bankruptcy filing for Nick Denton. It sounds like A.J. DeLario is going to file for bankruptcy. And actually, kind of crazy, uh, part of the story, he... His personal net worth is something like negative $26,000 because of his student loan debt and his credit card debt and all that kind of stuff. So like, they're going after everybody in this story uh, and kind of almost robbing him blind in a way um, as a result of this judgment. So the latest development, of course, Gawker, bought by Univision, $135 million. Um, They're going to keep every website running as part of that Gawker Media Group except for Gawker.com, the actual flagship.
0: Yeah, so all those satellite sites like uh, Kotaku and Jezebel and… Um, deadspin G- gizmodo
1: gizmodo yep. those
0: will also be fine those people will also have their jobs but it's just the main gawker.com site is no more
1: yeah and they, they did move all the writers from gawker.com over to those other sites yeah i think so but i guess you know univision just didn't want the like guess stigma of gawker.com
0: yeah i mean i feel like when you are buying something that was just sued successfully for 140 million dollars <laughs> maybe you don't want to keep that name anymore.
1: yeah yeah maybe like put a fresh coat of paint on that um and then obviously like the undercurrent to all of this is as as we mentioned, Peter Thiel. So he's the the billionaire venture ca- venture capitalist. He uh, was secretly for a long time, but then came forward as the 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 person who was funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker.
0: Yeah, I don't actually know if he like came out and confessed and said I I was behind this, but it was kind of like it was discovered. And he treated it pretty matter-of-factly. I think. Yeah, he
1: did. That's exactly what it was. He didn't actually come out until um, – I forget who it was exactly. I think for a while, Nick Denton was personally – he was suspicious. And he was like, somebody's got to be funding Hogan because he's right. – this is not working. He's, he's got way too much money to keep funding this lawsuit. And so uh, you know, some reporter out there did some digging. They found out it was Peter Thiel. And he finally came out when confronted. And as you said, it was pretty matter-of-fact about it. And in fact, he's even released an, an, edit, uh, an opinion piece in the New York Times explaining why he did it. Um, but yeah, he's, he, was, he was funding it all along. And of course, that brings up a lot of um, you know, controversy around kind of like which people litigating against the media. You know, Are they uh, holding back the free press, that sort of thing? Uh, so a lot of different elements to the story, uh, a lot to cover. But I guess just to start things off at the top, what are your immediate thoughts and takeaways now that Gawker's gone?
0: Um, well, on the one hand, I kind of like Gawker in a very uh, in a way that you wouldn't be proud of, <laughs> you yeah, okay. know, I mean, cause they're a very, obviously a very tabloidy, uh, type of gossip journalism. choice, sure. Which is, you know, I read all these articles from Nick Den and from AJ Bleria and all these other former writers and editors and are all pretty upfront about that too. Like there are no illusions that Gawker was some, well, there are some illusions about Gawker's sex, but <laughs> yeah. a lot of them are pretty upfront about the fact that they, you know, traded in gossip journalism and, you know, you kind of enjoy that in its own kind of it's
1: a guilty um, pleasure. Yeah, right? yeah,
0: exactly. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, I feel, as I was telling you earlier before you started this, I'm kind of of two minds about it. You know, on the one hand, there is a f- certain First Amendment thing that you want to protect. Um, you don't want to, like, set a precedent of billionaires with an to grind that can just, you know, bleed their enemy of choice in the media dry, um, if not shut it down outright. You know, on the other hand, you know, I feel like Peter Thiel, Thiel? Thiel?
1: I think it's teal. Thiel. Thiel.
0: Yeah. So Peter Thiel, I read his op-ed in the Times, and you know I kind of agree with some of his points. Maybe not in this particular case, but maybe so in this particular case. But like in the you know grand scheme of things, in a broader sense, I kind of agree with some of the points he's making in terms of like um, publishing very intimate private details of public figures. But sure, but not you know this isn't Woodward and Bernstein cracking up in Watergate, right. right? You know this isn't you know a corrupt politician. It's a wrestler hmm. and with his this um private tape that was published like there's no public interest there's no civic duty in that so hmm. i kind of get where he's coming from where hogan was coming from
1: yeah it was a weird this particular story was especially weird because the 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 article from Delaria was kind of it wasn't necessarily mocking of hogan but it was kind of like hey this is a funny thing you know and it wasn't yeah. as you said it's not like it's a corrupt politician it's not like it's some yeah you know woodward and bernstein type story but the argument, of course, being that Hogan is still a public figure. And actually, in court, Gawker argued that he was very frank about all these sort of private details when he's on Howard Stern's show. So right. why should he care that we've published this information about him? Um, uh, but on the flip side, as Teal said, you know, there can be harmful consequences to that. He personally has an axe to grind, of course, because years ago, I think it was 2012, uh, 2010, uh, they published, Gawker published a story outing Peter Teal, And it was, I guess it was supposed to be like an open secret within Silicon Valley that Peter Teal is gay. Um and the the, I guess the premise of that article from Gawker was, hey, this is great for the gay community. This is the smartest venture capitalist in the world, and he's gay. This is something we should celebrate. It shouldn't be you know hidden behind closed doors. Teal felt differently. He he basically wrote yeah. this New York Times piece. I was coming out slowly to all my friends. Gawker robbed me of that decision to to do you know that as I wanted to, and they and they hid behind this this uh, defense of me being a public figure, and, and for him that didn't stand. Right.
0: I mean, I, you know, I agree with Teal in that sense, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I feel like if Peter Teal wants to come out um, to his friends or family or to the entire world, that's totally his decision. And, you know, he should be able to control, you know, how that decision is made and how many people hear it at, you know, at any given time. Um, and I feel like that was, you know, of all the lines that Gawker <laughs> t- has tended to cross, I feel like that was a pretty significant line. I don't feel he's, you know, un- Peter Teal is undeserved in his, you know, scorn to them. Like, that's not their decision to make. And there's no... Uh, you know, civic value in outing that. And the same thing with uh, Hulk Hogan's tape. Like, you know, P- Hulk Hogan might be very um, public about his private life too, but, you know, if he wants to release that tape, that's his de- decision and doesn't really serve anyone's um, meaningful interests, I guess, to have Gawker do that for him.
1: Yeah. I guess that gets down to kind of the um, the weird, uh, I-, I feel like the public perception around Gawker closing, it's kind of two different ways. Uh, at least the way I've seen it is the media seems to be pretty pretty much in the you know defending the free press uh, it's Gawker's editorial decision and the editorial right to publish what they want within reason um, you know everybody's acknowledging that yeah they've crossed a the line in quite a few times but in principle at least it shouldn't be okay for a billionaire to sue uh, a publication into non-existence right whereas I feel like the public, I mean, I don't know, just from people I see, you know, even in just, like, comment sections, Reddit, whatever, nobody really cares necessarily that Gawker is gone. And they actually almost praise it. Like, yeah, yeah finally, that place was a dumpster fire. Like, that like, place
0: gets just desserts. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel that's kind of reflected in the, um, the jury settlement. You know, the fact that, I mean, what do they award? $140 million to Hogan? That's, like, that seems like a huge amount for this kind of case. Like, it's an insane man. Like, unprecedented almost. So I feel like. That kind of you know that jury had that amount of scorn for Gawker. I feel like that's not a one-off thing. I feel it's pretty representative of the public at large. Yeah. um Going back to your first point about how the media seems pretty pro Gawker or pro um, you know the principle of of the thing. I kind of feel that, that divides into two further camps. You have the quote unquote regular journalists, the regular press who are more concerned about the precedent it sets in terms of First Amendment protections and um, just general protection of the press from ventral billionaires. Um, and the other side, there are the former Gawker writers who like Nick Den mm-hmm. and Idid Delaria and Mike Reed, who wrote this long piece um, for New York Magazine. Um, sorry, Max Reed. Uh, and I kind of feel like those guys, probably because they used to work at Gawker and are you know chiefly responsible for some of these stories, um, are making these very strange kind of rose-tinted glasses rationalizations for Gawker it's very much like you know they're all pretty up to up front about you know yeah we publish a lot of nonsense and a lot of tabloid trash but you know at the end of the day Gawker stood for something and we were Mm. like these you know fearless reckless journalists who weren't afraid to go there and like you know bring down the powerful and you know bring them down to our level and I can you know that might be true in terms of like I mean, I'm sure Nick Dunn can send me a, a email of like 20 stories that show Gawker taking down like these high and mighty politicians who deserve, or rich people or whoever deserve to be taken down a peg. But my general impression of Gawker is that they're not like this venerable mm. <laughs> fourth estate institution. So I don't buy these glowing obituaries of Gawker, like these after the fact comments or statements about how they're, you know, the last great, uh, you know, journalistic outlet with no limitations that weren't afraid to like get the story when others were too afraid to
1: yeah that that's that's an interesting point because it's it it is painted almost like that you know um and some of these pieces i was especially interested in in the one that nick denton wrote himself on gawker i think it's the last piece they've ever published Mm -hmm. and he kind of gave the timeline of its you know uh, creation and then its demise and the editorial strategy has always been kind of or maybe i got this from max reed's piece but it's always been uh, nick denton loves gossip and so he wants to expose that gossip because the things that journalists talk about over lunch is far more interesting than what they write about in the, in the actual paper. So right. if a publicist that you work with is actually a huge jerk, then why not just write about it and out him as being a huge jerk. And you know, I, I guess that serves some sort of public interest, I don't know, but really it's it's almost to the benefit of the journalists themselves. It's kind of a very in insular, you know, like, you know, it's it's for the industry. Yeah. Um, it's it's
0: very uh, you know, the journalist equivalent of inside baseball.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, there's that aspect where you're kind of showing these people in, in positions of power, uh, maybe abusing that power. And there, and there were some pretty important stories that Gawker's written over, over the years, but it did it did kind of seem like a lot of that material was almost, um, it's important to a certain segment of the public, but a pretty small one almost. Yeah. I don't know if the greater public is really getting anything out of knowing that a certain publicist at a certain paper is a jerk. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of the weird, I don't know. I, 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 I took away that same sort of um maybe rose tinted glasses kind of uh feelings from a lot of those former gawker writers as well and it's that's what makes this this whole thing sort of complicated because while you don't want to see a a, a publication go down and people potentially lose their jobs it's like what really was gawker necessarily
0: right um yeah so i mean i kind of feel like like you just said you know i don't really believe gawker was this great journalistic enterprise that we are much worse off of for not having anymore Mm. um but I feel like I've been pretty harsh on Gawker so far. So yeah, yeah, I mean take the opposite tack. Um, I also understand, like the and you know, largely sympathize with, I guess, the concerns about um, basically money threatening uh, free speech and freedom of the press, and this idea that um, you know, as I said earlier, if a billionaire has an axe to grind and they have the funds, you know, to go on forever, you know, Gawker might have been a pretty rich outlet or rich enough to sustain and win all these other court cases, but you know, millions of dollars run out faster than billions of dollars do.
1: Sure. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know,
0: even and even if Peter Thiel was unsuccessful in uh, defeating Gawker in court, um, he could have, at the same time, just bled them dry for like, millions in legal costs.
1: Exactly, yeah. And, and a lot of these cases, um, you know, this isn't the first time Gawker's been sued, of course. There's been many other uh, uh, situations, but those have generally ended in settlements. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, happens behind closed doors. This was a very, really, you know, personal then dead. And it's kind of... Um, you start to wonder like where Peter Thiel's heads at. Where I get it that he was personally uh, offended by what happened to him, but this is like a this is like a diabolical scheme here. Yeah. You know, like you know, over a period of more than nearly ten years or something like that, to hold this grudge and to make sure that you know you're getting every dollar you can out of this this publication. You know, supporting Hogan's Hogan's case here. It's it's not just like a you know. Uh, a, a crime of passion, you might say. It's yeah. like, you know, an extended no, premeditated. yeah, an extended effort to, to bleed this co- uh, company dry. But just on that topic, you mentioned billionaires, um, you know, suing the press. Could this set a precedent? It's actually, of course, not the first time that a billionaire has tried to sue a publication. Uh, Pointer actually had a good roundup of other such cases. There was one, uh, Sheldon Adelson, who was actually one of my favorite comical bad guy billionaires, because he's, he's, <laughs> he's all over these kind of crazy stories. Uh, he actually sued the Wall Street Journal. He's got an ongoing suit against a reporter there uh, over an article that described him as foul-mouthed. That's apparently all it actually said, but he's got this lawsuit because they called him foul mouth. He has a foul mouth. Uh, he also recently bought the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and uh, a, a columnist there actually had like an unflattering passage about him in a book once. He sued that columnist, then he bought the newspaper. Uh, the columnist learned that he can't write about his new owner, Sheldon Adelson, and so he resigned from the paper. That columnist like, I'm out of here Um, because Adelson actually is now kind of wielding a lot of power over the editorial strategy at Las Vegas Mm -hmm. Review-Journal. I heard a story, I think it was around um, like a real estate development. I think it was like the Oakland Raiders proposed stadium. He wanted it like covered in a very positive way Um, and the editors there were like obviously having a lot of problems with that because he had a personal interest in seeing that stadium built. So that's just one example of another billionaire getting involved. Uh, This guy named Frank Vandersloot, a Idaho businessman and Republican donor who sued Mother Jones over an article about his company's contributions to Mitt Romney's Super PAC. And um, everybody's favorite, Donald Trump, in 2009, filed a $5 billion defamation suit against a book author who wrote that the reality TV star wasn't actually a billionaire. Uh, he lost, but of course, as a presidential candidate, he said he's going to open up libel laws uh, so that when you know newspapers write, something negative or or nasty or whatever we can sue them and win lots of money that's his actual quote so it's a thing billionaires are suing publications does does has teal kind of given them a blueprint for for what to do in the future
0: um i'm not sure well that's a good question i don't know because as you said other billionaires have been doing this for a while teal's not the first one won't be the last one
1: does it I, maybe embolden them, though? Like, yeah, I, I feel
0: like this is almost kind of a rallying cry, like, you know, we can pull it off, you know, yeah. as if, you know, billionaires need the <laughs> they need the ego <laughs> boost that yeah. they get something done. The motivation. Yeah, you know, as I said earlier, you know, look at this, you know, this case with Trump who sued, you know, for $5 billion against the claim that he wasn't actually a billionaire, or Sheldon Edelson suing the Wall Street Journal reporter because he was described as foul-mouthed. Like, yeah. you know, on paper, you no, know, admittedly, I haven't dug into the specifics of these cases. So maybe yeah. they're really terrible. But, you know, on paper, my first impression is that that's, huge uh, overreaction from adelson and trump's part but that's exactly like the kind of the teal model you know it yeah. doesn't matter if the if the if their lawsuit is you know without merit or just really overblown the other party has to respond you have to go right. to court either you can settle which you send out you know you lose a lot of money or you wage a very protracted legal battle which is even more money probably and adelson and trump and teal can sustain that for yeah. however many years because they are actual billionaires or trump might not be but is close to <laughs> it to it's debatable apparently yeah. um and the wall street journal and gawker and whoever else aren't billionaires they're not you know hugely wealthy institutions and you know millions of dollars in legal fees is millions of dollars less money on investigative reporting or right. um you know new video assets on the front page of the new york times or stuff like that you know that's less material that they had to invest in actual real journalism right um and you know those cases take a hit, and slowly but surely, have billionaires. You know, if they don't win,
1: they can kind of chip away at at, um, at these publications. Right, you can you can kind of take a shot even if you're not winning. And uh, you mentioned as as a rallying cry, and I felt like that teal um, opinion piece in the New York Times almost was exactly that. He yeah. seemed to be encouraging uh, the public to hold journalists uh, responsible and, and accountable for for what they write. And basically saying, you know, we will not stand for this type of writing in the future. And, you know, the public has taken it. He, he really made it like, you know, it's not just me, the billionaire. It's, it's for all of us, all, all Americans. Yeah. You know, the, privacy is, is in our best interest, that sort of thing. I found that to be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, with all things considered, 2016 is really the year of American populism, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of strange that you, you know, have a, this Silicon Valley billionaire kind of making this populist appeal um, based on this, you know, relatively obscure court case. Um, but one article I read, I forget, and I forgot who wrote it. It might have been the Max Reed piece, but it might not have been. But it's funny to consider how how the temperature on this case changed from 2012 to 2016, because um, I don't think it's unusual for cases to take that long. No. Yeah. Um, but the public attitude towards privacy and digital privacy in just the last four years has changed dramatically. Over the last four years, we've had all these revelations come out about the NSA, from Edward Snowden, um, from WikiLeaks. Uh, you know, digital privacy and encryption and Internet security and online safeguards have taken on like a completely different life than they have four or five years ago. So it's to Teal's advantage and to similar billionaires' advantage that the public is kind of with them now. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're much more discerning of journalists who willfully, as Gawker did, violate, you know, individual private matters for seemingly non-journalistic <laughs> reasons. Yeah. Um, so it kind of helps Teal and it helps similar billionaires who might want to go that route. I guess. Um or any complainant who wants to go that route and, you know, kind of has the public on their side, and I potentially a jury on their side that favors the side whose privacy was violated,
1: right. yeah, it, you're right. it's it's kind of the ideal timing to play that card if you needed to, you know, and get and get sympathy around that sort of issue because it's on everyone's mind. It's just interesting because, again, classic journalism, rule of thumb is, you know, public figure versus private figure. And is it in the public's interest to reveal those details? And I guess what kind of hurts Gawker in this entire situation is that, they were almost too often caught, or at least accused, of doing things that weren't necessarily easy to defend as being in the public's interest. Right. I mean, this H- Hogan case is obviously a big example. Uh, there was another case; I don't remember his name. That's probably a good thing. But they didn't—they uh, outed a an executive pretty recently. This is about a year ago. And Actually, I think this is how Max Reed—he uh, stepped down because he was uh, not in favor of the story being pulled. So he stepped down as as editor of uh, Gawker. But basically, they published a story about uh, some executive. Um, who was married to a woman, and apparently on the side was you know getting male escorts or something like that. You right. Know, it was, it was classic go- s- sorted Gawker story. Yeah,
0: it is a very uh, prototypical Gawker story. It is.
1: Yeah, and and the whole deal was um, nobody knows who this guy is, and it's not it's not like you know I don't know who it would be relevant to know that information for, but it certainly wasn't this guy. Yeah. Um, to the point where Nick Denton himself said this story had just no merit. They pulled it, a very rare thing for a Gawker to do. Uh, Two editors stepped down in reaction to this big controversy, and it was – it's kind of like that. You know, when you get caught doing that kind of stuff, um, it definitely does kind of harm your credibility almost as a journalistic institute and kind of probably harm – you know, negate how much sympathy you can get from the public for these kind of stories. Right,
0: and just, you know – content on the internet has a very long shelf life you know yeah. possibly a, an infinite one yeah. so just like retracting a story and apologizing for it doesn't mean that story never happened you know right. that guy was still outed um you know peter Thiel was still outed all these hulk hogan's tape was still released and shown to the public you know just taking things down and apologizing for, apologizing for them afterward doesn't actually change things it makes it actually just confirms people's beliefs that you did something wrong in the first
1: place right yeah so i mean obviously i don't know how many how many publications are going to take Uh, you know lessons away from this like don't write about uh
0: yeah i mean well i feel like a lot of publications like like the new york times like the washington post like the vast majority of credible journalistic enterprises um they have editorial boards they have like specific rules and guidelines to kind of you know prevent this kind of thing from happening to making sure that their journalists aren't crossing any moral or ethical boundary for the sake of clicks Mm -hmm. um and i feel like gawker's big claim to fame was they didn't really have that not that they didn't have editors but that they were much looser with those kinds of things than, you know, the Times or the Post might be. Right. Um, which is probably why they landed in hot water so often. Right. And there's another piece I was reading. Um, this might have also been the same Max Reed piece. It was a really long piece. There's a, yeah, a, a, a lot of, good of good stuff, stuff in it. Yeah. Um, but he mentioned how, like, Nick Denton had a very kind of I don't want to say schizophrenic, but a very uh, his attitude towards these things changed all the time. Like, yeah. you know, he would harp on publishing very salacious material, but then when to worry about being seen as too mean but then would allow similarly mean things to be posted um but then apologize for one of them after the fact so i imagine to sympathize with gawker for a little bit uh, because i haven't done a lot of that i guess (laughs) um so far is that if you're writing for gawker and you are don't know where this line is and you're treading very carefully because you know the site's reputation and you know what gawker's readers want but you don't totally know yourself and your big boss the guy ultimately in charge of everything um is constantly changing his position on these things must make it really difficult to like know where the line is because the yeah. line is constantly moving from your perspective.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And actually that's something that Max Reed did mention in that piece. It was kind of, you know, when he when he came on as executive editor, they still kind of had that, you know, fly by the CD like Wild West kind of mentality where yeah. again, this this whole site started because Nick Denton likes gossip. He wants to to bring that stuff to light. And so, you know, kind of following that ethos you know, Max Reed would okay a story and say this is definitely the type of thing that Gawker would want. But you could definitely see over the years uh, through his public comments um, and just interviews that he did, Nick Denton kind of started to step away from that. There was there were more masters to serve. You know, Gawker had uh, bills to pay. They right. had uh, advertisers. Um, and so it's like, okay, we're a business now. We can't necessarily be totally Wild West. We, we want to stick to who we are as a site, but we, you know, we don't want to be the, the callow, the, uh, you know, mean, bullying Gawker that we were five, six years ago. Um, but that is really confusing if you're on the staff, I'm sure.
0: There was even one article, um, uh, there was a post that a Gawker writer written that I guess was along these, you know, quote unquote, mean lines. I don't remember what the story was about, um, but I did remember that Nick Denton had commented on that yeah. article and criticized it. So I imagine if you're a Gawker writer, whether you're a newbie or a veteran editor-in-chief, and your boss is commenting on your public article about how you've, you know, crossed that line, Maybe not in so many words, but you know sure. how you've published something that's against public interest, or you publish something that's just flat out too mean. Um, that probably throws you for a loop. Yeah, <laughs> you know you don't know where the where the line is.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I think also you know a little bit more in defense of Gawker, uh, Nick Denton didn't make a good point in his um, his post There were never any real big plagiarism controversies at Gawker or like a Jason Blair-type situation, which you've seen happen at the New York Times. Right? They never really had any of that. It wasn't that they ever necessarily out-and-out defied traditional journalism conventions. Uh, You could argue that publishing stuff that isn't really in the public's interest and and doing that Gawker-style writing was itself a big faux pas. But like, it wasn't like anybody got caught committing a a serious crime in a way.
0: Yeah, but I guess I would say... um In that sense, like there was no big Dan Rather at CBS moment where he was like publicly shamed for, you know, essentially making things up almost. Um, But the difference is that Dan Rather resigned, you know, and that was a very public, you know, there's a very public moment. There was a very public uh, retribution for that almost. Um, And Gawker never really had that because they could always get away with that. So
1: Mm. I mean, they've had their own resignations over the years too, but it's not necessarily – I, I guess, you know, people viewed them differently, right? Dan Rather had to step down because you're Dan Rather. You don't lie and you don't yeah. say what's not true and you don't say what's not necessarily necessary. You know, it's... it's Maybe he had enough journalism journalistic credibility to start with that he had a lot more to lose than, say, Gawker did. That's true, yeah. Um, which, I don't know if that's fair or I don't know if yeah, a Gawker writer would agree with that. Is that Early in Gawker's defense? Or <laughs> yeah, that's kind of... I'm kind of like... Yeah, that's... Um, what is it? Damning by faint praise or whatever? But, yeah. like, it's... Yeah, I'm not trying to say they're not credible, but, like... No one's expecting Gawker to be, uh, as you said, the premier journalistic institution, though they did occasionally break some pretty big stories. So
0: Yeah. I guess, I yeah, I agree with you're saying, Then even though I made the original counterpoint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I guess, like, the difference is um, when, you know, Brian Williams is caught on TV lying and apologizes for it and is kind of disgraced for it. It's because we were all disappointed in Brian Williams because we normally like him as, a, as an anchor and don't really have those same kind of lofty expectations for Gawker, I suppose.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, regardless, um, as you mentioned, it, it was a little bit of a guilty pleasure. I liked Gawker just for—I mean, ninety percent of the time, they were not publishing things that were salaciously outing, you know, people when they shouldn't have been, or, or, yeah. or that kind of stuff. I mean, half the time you go to the site and it's uh, a silly meme or a photo that was funny, or you know, some or Donald Trump said something stupid and they wrote about it. You know, it was yeah. it was pretty harmless um, stuff. I feel like most of the time, um, unless you're Donald Trump, but uh, <laughs> for the most for the most of us, uh, it was. And, and, and you know, again, occasionally some pretty interesting stuff. They'll, they they expose some. Uh, they got in, in hot water with Gamergate because of uh, their coverage of that, uh, and that was a pretty yeah. complicated issue. So,
0: and I would say that was you know a worthy photo to take down.
1: Yeah, I mean that in that case Gawker was doing what they say they want to do. They were taking down people who um, I guess you would say deserve to be taken down, or, or you know, um, or at least deserve public scrutiny. Yeah, just let's let's go, let's go with that. Um, deserve public scrutiny. So I mean, talking a little bit about the site's legacy, I mean. There isn't really another – is there another site that does what they do or would even choose to do what they do given now that they've seen what happened to Gawker? Do
0: you mean are there other sites like Gawker right now or are this, yeah. or new Gawkers in the making that? Well,
1: right now and new Gawkers. I mean I assume we'll probably see very few new Gawkers just because, as you said, we've kind of moved past the part, point in time where it's cool to bring up these nasty details about people's personal lives. Yeah. I feel like as a society, we're just like, hey, let's, let's all keep quiet here about what's going on behind closed doors. Um, I could be wrong, though. Maybe I'm just totally reading this.
0: No, I, I kind of agree with that. I mean, I feel like that kind of shoot from the hip style of uh, internet blogging or internet journalism, whatever you want to call it, um, has kind of faded out over the last five, seven, eight years just because of the increasingly more prolific nature of the internet. There's more people on the internet. There's yeah. more companies on the internet. There's more power on the internet. And I feel like there's a lot of too many people are too invested in the internet now for another site like
1: Gawker to really come around Mm. um, and kind of shake things up, I guess, which is kind of a shame. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think we can still probably depend on, like, these traditional... I would hope so. We can depend on, like, (laughs) some of these traditional media companies to bring the serious stuff to light when it needs to be brought to light. You know, if there's corruption going on, political candidates or, you know, uh, major corporations or whatever, that stuff still uh, should be covered. And I think the public still has an appetite for that kind of stuff. You want to know if the NSA NSA is spying on you, that kind of thing. Ideally. Uh, Ideally, that'd be good. Um, And I think the other stuff that kind of maybe isn't so totally public interest but still important in in certain circles I think there still is probably a home for that you see things like Reddit um, you know communities where people are are bringing this stuff to light themselves and it's less you know sending a tip to Gawker to have them do it it's like
0: it's more user generated it's more user
1: generated right so like that function of Gawker has almost been replaced by social media in a way
0: yeah it's true I was gonna say like you know you might not be uh, sending long blind items to Gawker from the post um, but you might just retweet those blind items, you know. Um, and I feel like that gains probably as much traction if not more so now. Um, I forget who wrote it, so I'm not gonna claim credit for it, but somebody else wrote that, you know, Gawker has kind of died now, but its spirit lives on in, you know, almost infinite ways. Mm. You know, it's totally influenced the way that we write blogs, it's totally influenced the way we write internet journalism, it's totally influenced the way we write and share social media content. Mm. Um, so for for better or worse, Gawker's legacy is kind of pretty set in stone, even if for Nick Denton, it wasn't, you know, the legacy he might, he might have wanted.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah, I think there, like, the sense of outrage, if you want to call it that, that Gawker kind of had for a little bit there was, um, I think that probably will still live on in a lot of different forms. Uh, maybe not through just one publication that publishes all this stuff, but it's going to be important to make sure there are people there to put that stuff in context. So that way it's not just, because, you know, a lot of false accusations can get thrown out there. Um, yeah. So there's going to need to be some care, and, and that's where you would hope, you know, journalists would step up and make sure that stuff gets put in the right context. So. You mentioned like the influence on, on web writing too. That was a big one. Mm-hmm. It's kind of casual kind of,
0: you know, basically their style guide is kind of the de facto style guide for every similar gossip journalist or regular blog across the internet. Absolutely. You know, it's really ridiculous how they, they almost invented, I don't know if to say they invented clickbait, but I will say it, they invented clickbait, <laughs> you know, and like everyone does that now, you know, yeah. and people parody it and make fun of it, but it's still extremely influential and profitable for, I don't know, you know how many people, yeah. um, so yeah, Gawker Gawker's dead, but their influence lives on.
1: It does. That's a good way to finish this, I think. Any other thoughts before we uh depart here about Gawker and its legacy? Um, or just this particular case. I mean, should other companies, should other media publications be worried about uh, billionaires knocking down their door and suing them or
0: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a totally valid concern. You know, I think it's been an ongoing concern for a few years now. Um, but I feel like Pierre Thiel's very successful uh bid at it has um should put the fear of lawsuits in a lot of media publications uh, hearts yeah um and i kind of feel like you know as much of a unsympathetic hero for first amendment rights gawker might have been um at the same time there are first amendment rights there are freedom of the press rights um and while gawker might not necessarily be the hill you want to die on for that debate uh you have to pick a hill at some point you know yeah. you gotta draw the line somewhere um and better to die on this hill than you know, when it's too late for the Washington Post or for the New York Times and their student to oblivion.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's that's a good point. And I think um, ultimately, in a personal sense, at least, I think I'm ultimately pretty sympathetic towards what happened to Gawker, despite their complicated history and all the crazy stuff they've done. Um, it's not a really, I think, flattering story. And I think in, in the future, it might not look good for Peter Thiel to be the guy who you know, hopefully it, doesn't, hopefully it doesn't start a trend, but, you know, you don't want to be that, Right. you don't want to have that place in history as like the guy who took down a publication because they wrote something bad about you. Yeah. Uh, and I get it. It's a complicated situation and all that, but um, I don't know. I, I guess in a personal sense, at least, I side with the, the, the freedom of the press people and the idea that, um, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty bad and dangerous if a bunch of billionaires can just go open their wallets and sue companies into oblivion. I mean, or publications specifically. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot to cover with Gawker. I think we did a pretty good job, though. I hope so. I hope so. I hope
0: it was a compelling show.
1: I hope you guys got something out of it. Uh, if you have any thoughts, uh, listeners, about this particular topic or any others that we cover on Hacks and Flax, you can reach us on Twitter. It's at HacksFlax. Uh, we also have an Instagram account, same handle, at HacksFlax. Uh, podcasts here is, of course, a production of March Communications, and you can find out a, a more about our agency and listen to past episodes of Hacks and Flax at Marchcoms.com blog. Thanks for joining me today, Andrew.
0: No problem. Thanks for having me, manny.